you all. Thank you for joining us. We love, we love to learn with you as often as we can together. Please always share your suggestions and ideas of, uh, of other learning you'd like to do together. We have just an hour together and we are here to, it's, uh, we thank Temple Chai for being a co-sponsor today. And we are here with Professor Joy Layden who holds the Goddessman Chair in English at Yeshiva University and in 2007 became the first openly transgender employee of an Orthodox Jewish institution, author of nine books of poetry, a memoir, Through the Door of Life, A Jewish Journey Between Genders, and The Soul of the Stranger, Reading God and Torah from a Transgender Perspective. She has long served on the board of Keshet, organization devoted to full inclusion of LGBTQ Jews in the Jewish world. Joy was supposed to be with us last year or the, earlier this year or whenever it was um, with, the, with the Jewish Book Council about this uh, latest book, Torah from a Transgender Perspective. But the world, uh, as they say, you, you know, people plan and God laughs. So nothing has been as planned. Um, but we said, you know what? We can't wait to get you back in person. Let's, let's do something together anyways. So friends, our, our plan today is about a 30 to 45 minute presentation then followed by a chance to uh, to ask some questions. Um, of course, you can use the chat between now and then if you'd like to share anything else over there as well. And with that, Professor Joy Layden, it's an honor to have you here with us. Thank you. I am delighted to be with you. Um, okay. I'm often asked how I reconcile being religious with being transgender. For me, there's never been a conflict between them. As long as I can remember, I felt I was female. And as long as I can remember, I've sensed God's presence. I've gotten used to talking about being transgender, but no matter how much I talk about my relationship with God, it still makes me squirm to say, I feel God's presence. I grew up surrounded by people for whom God is God, an empty word, an outdated superstition a symbol of ideals that human beings find it hard to live up to. Even at Hebrew school and synagogue, I didn't dare let anyone guess that to me, God wasn't an abstraction, but someone who was there, invisible, but as real as cold or warmth or humidity. No one else I knew seemed to experience God as a living presence. But when I read the Torah, that was the God I found there. The Torah portrays God as passionately involved with human lives, not just with extraordinary individuals like Abraham and Sarah, but with everyone. God doesn't buy or sell, but insists that human beings do so honestly. God doesn't have parents, but is concerned with how we treat ours. God doesn't live in space or time, but wants us to give meaning to the places and seasons of our lives. But the Torah also makes it clear that though God is present and personally involved in human lives, God isn't human. God has no face, no form, no beginning or end, and can't be understood in any of the terms we use to understand ourselves in our world. As God tells Moses at the burning bush, God is what God is and will be what God will be. This invisible, incomprehensible but undeniably present God is the God I grew up with. Not because my family was religious, they weren't. Not because we read Torah together, we certainly didn't. And not because religious teachers or leaders taught me to think of God this way. They didn't teach me to think of God at all. But because as long as I can remember, 
This was the God to whom I woke and with whom I fell asleep, the God to whom I whispered and whimpered and sometimes screamed. To me, God wasn't a mystical experience. God was just a fact of life, like my parents. But I felt closer to God than I felt to my parents. My parents, like other human beings, identified me with my male body. To them, I was a boy named Jay, and both because I loved them and because I was terrified of being rejected if they guessed the truth, I did my best to act like the boy they thought I was. God never mistook me for the body others saw. God knew who I really was and how alone I felt because God, like me, had no body to make God visible, no face human beings could see. To God, I suspect, I wasn't so different from the kids I grew up with. Like other children, I ate and slept and went to school, rode my bike, played, was self-centered and sometimes cruel, careless of the truth and others' feelings. Even though I knew that the way I looked on the outside didn't express who I was on the inside, I still identified others by the color of their skin and the sex of their bodies, assuming that other people really were the boys or girls, men or women they appeared to be. Even though in most ways I was like other children, I always felt I was something else, something that had no name or place in the world. Nowadays, I'd say that because I didn't fit into the gender binary that defines everyone as either male or female, I couldn't feel I was really part of humanity. But when I was a kid, all I knew was that my sense of being female made me different in a way that were, was shameful and dangerous, a way that kept others from seeing or understanding or loving me. Of course, no one is exactly who we seem to be. Few people old enough to think about it would say that their bodies perfectly express who they are, or that they always feel and act in ways that fit others' ideas of who they ought to be. Gender and other identities are always compromises that require us to sacrifice some of our messy individuality in order to fit into our families, friendships, and communities. But when it came to gender, I couldn't make that compromise. I could and did act like the boy I was supposed to be, but I couldn't feel that I really was that boy. Couldn't feel like I really was present in any relationship because every relationship was based on gender. I wasn't just my parents' child. I was supposed to be their son. I wasn't just a kid on the block. I was one of the boys. I wasn't even just a Jew. I was supposed to be a Jewish male. And so even though I was surrounded by people who saw me as one of them, I grew up feeling invisible, afraid, and alone. But I was alone with God. All the things that cut me off from other people, my lack of a body that felt like mine, my inability to fit into gender categories, my sense of being unspeakably different, all those things made me feel closer to God. God knew who and what I was. God had created me fitting my mismatched body and soul together. God was always there day and night as I tried to live and sometimes tried to die. We were an odd couple, uh, God and I, me struggling with a body that didn't feel like mine, God existing beyond all that is, was, or will be. But when it came to relating to human beings, God and I had something in common. Neither of us could be seen or understood by the people we dwelt among and loved. 
And so, as long as I can remember, being transgender has brought me closer to God. That might sound strange. Both religious and non-religious people tend to think of trans identities as inherently secular. But most religious traditions recognize that conditions that cut us off from other people can bring us closer to God. Though being transgender isn't among the conditions that traditions tend to recognize, there are many religious people whose relationships with God have been profoundly shaped by being transgender because as they wrestled with suffering, isolation, and questions about who they were and how they should live, they, like other religious people, turned to God for the understanding they couldn't find among human beings. There's a lot more awareness of trans people today than there was when I was growing up, which is to say there's some awareness of trans people today, whereas there was no awareness of them when I was growing up. Um, and more religious communities that openly accept transgender members. But even the most welcoming communities have just begun to think about how religious traditions that are based on the assumption that human beings are either and always male or female can speak to people who don't fit those categories. I was in my mid forties before I met a rabbi who would accept me as a transgender Jew. But I heard Jewish traditions speak to my life every Yom Kippur afternoon when Jews traditionally read the book of Jonah which tells a story every trans person knows. The story of someone desperate to avoid living as the person, in Jonah's case, as the prophet, they know themselves to be. From the beginning of the book, when God orders him to go at once to Nineveh and proclaim judgment upon it, it's clear Jonah knows he's a prophet. Jonah doesn't ask why God chose him to deliver this message or argue, as Moses does at the burning bush, that he isn't qualified to do so. He just runs away because, as he explains in the final chapter, he already knows God won't destroy Nineveh, no matter how wicked the people are. Even as God tells him of God's impending judgment, Jonah, as befits a prophet, already knows God will spare them. Jonah is so desperate to avoid being a prophet that he abandons whatever life he's been living and boards a ship to Tarshish, which when I was a kid growing up in Rochester, New York, I assumed was like Buffalo. Buffalo was the place that was worse than Rochester. Um, so Tarshish, lots of snow, no culture. Um, but as many trans people know, when we flee from being who we are, we flee from life itself. While his ship is tossed by a God-sent storm, Jonah stays asleep in the hold, in a slumber so deep, it overrides even his instinct for self-preservation. When the captain wakes him up and tells him to call upon your God for deliverance, Jonah responds not with prayer, but with a suicidal gesture, telling the sailors, heave me overboard and the sea will calm down for you. Why would Jonah respond this way? God sent the storm because he refused to go to Nineveh. So Jonah could have appeased God's anger by telling God he'd do what God ordered him to do. Jonah's self-destructive response reflects a psychological pattern all too familiar among transgender people. Flee from yourself as long as you can, and when you can no longer endure the internal and external storms, kill yourself for the sake of others, so you can avoid ever having to live as who you are. Jonah is so desperate to live, to avoid living as the prophet he is, 
but he prefers not to live at all. Trans people often tell ourselves suicide will resolve the conflict between our need to be and not be who we truly are. Our families, our communities, our world will be better off without us, we think. And we, released from the shame of hiding and the terror of living as who we are, will finally be at peace. In Jonah's case, this suicidal fantasy seems to come true. When he's thrown overboard, the sea stops raging and he sinks peacefully into the depths, into the heart of the sea, where he's famously swallowed by a whale. But Jonah, miraculously, doesn't die. In the depths of the sea, in the belly of the whale, Jonah finds himself alone with the God he fled. God literally surrounds him, providing him with breath, warmth, protection, sustaining his life in the midst of death. In other words, Jonah's flight from himself leads him simultaneously closer to death and closer to God. That spiritual paradox is at the heart of his story. And it was at the heart of the story of my life when I was living as a man I knew I wasn't. Like Jonah, I was so desperate to avoid living as who I was that I eagerly chose death over life, despair over hope, isolation over human connection. Even in the midst of my family, I felt like I was at the bottom of the sea, but I wasn't alone. Though suicidal depression swallowed me for decades, God was there, surrounding me, holding me, keeping me alive. For Jonah, his miraculous deliverance is a turning point. He's so grateful that God has saved him that when the whale vomits him out on shore, and, and he is vomited, but he's still grateful, he overcomes his reluctance to present himself as a prophet, and he heads off to Nineveh. Unlike Jonah, I experience God as preserving me in the depths rather than delivering me to life. God didn't want me to live as who I really was, I told myself. God wanted me, was helping me, submerge my true self forever. That's what love is, I told myself, pretending to be what others want you to be, suffering in silence, embracing loneliness, giving up on joy. Year after year, when the ram's horn blew on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, I wept, not because I was repenting of my sins, but because I knew as long as I lived as a man, I'd never feel truly alive. God could preserve my life in the depths of suicidal despair, but even God couldn't deliver me from those depths until I did what Jonah did, except that I had to live is who I really was. Despite his gratitude for God's deliverance, Jonah still isn't thrilled about being a prophet. And that's not surprising because in his case, being a prophet means walking through Nineveh proclaiming 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Uh, not a lot of people lining up for that job. As Jonah no doubt knew, prophets often paid a heavy price for expressing God's displeasure with the prevailing social order. Jeremiah was thrown into a pit 400 of Elijah's fellow prophets were murdered. Jonah isn't imprisoned or killed, but his work as a prophet requires him to disrupt the community and challenge social norms by acting in ways that mark him as different. 
Like Jonah, I knew I couldn't live as who I was without being stared at, treated as an embarrassment or public menace, and risking the ridicule and violence trans people face every day. It was easy to imagine how I and those I loved might suffer if I dared to express my female gender identity. But what good, I wondered, could possibly come of living a truth that would mark me publicly and permanently as other? That's Jonah's question too. Despite his firsthand knowledge of God's plan, Jonah never really gets what good comes of him living as a prophet. Since, as he says at the end of the book, he always knew God would be merciful whether or not he marched through Nineveh proclaiming that it was going to be destroyed. But unlike Jonah, the people of Nineveh couldn't hear God summoning them to change their lives. They had to hear that message from a human throat, from a body they could see, from a person who not only saw things differently, but who was willing to stand up and stand out as different. Jonah saved Nineveh, or rather enabled Nineveh to save itself by accepting the discomfort and the risk of being the prophet he was. Most trans people aren't visionaries or prophets, and someday being transgender will be no harder to understand than any other way of being human, which is to say hard to understand, but still just in the normal way. When that day comes, we aren't gonna to have to wonder if we should kill ourselves for the sake of others or pretend to be other than who we are. We'll face our human share of sorrow and struggle. And when we look to religious community for help, we'll know that the, that the traditions that sustain, comfort and guide others are there to sustain, comfort and guide us too. But for most of us, that future is still a distant dream. And so trans people daily face the kinds of choices Jonah faced. Will we run away, sink into despair, throw ourselves into the sea? Or will we live as who we are, even when that means being seen as different, disruptive, a threat to social order? I don't mean to suggest that the book of Jonah is about being transgender, although that would be really cool. The book of Jonah is about being human. But transgender experience is human experience. And the questions trans people face are questions that face us all. Everyone, transgender or not, has to decide when we can't and when we must sacrifice our individuality for the sake of families and communities. When we have to be what others count on us to be and when, like Jonah, we have to live the truths that set us apart. When we read the book of Jonah in the light of transgender experience, we're reminded that the crisis it dramatizes is one that most people face sooner or later. The crisis of realizing that we must live what makes us different or we can't live at all. Jewish communities have only relatively recently recognized the existence of transgender Jews. Um, even decades is relatively recently in uh, when it's 3,000 years of history that you're dealing with. That is a blink of an eye. Um, but in Jewish tradition, the need to include those who don't fit our usual roles and categories goes back to the beginning of the Ten Commandments, when Moses and when God insists that the Israelites accept that God is unlike anything they know. Um, uh, 
the beginning of the Ten Commandments, it, God says, you shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself a sculptured image or any likeness of what is in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. This isn't only a prohibition against idolatry, which seems like something archaic and distant to most people. It's also a declaration that the foundation of Judaism is the recognition of God's difference, not just from each deities, but from everything human beings can see, experience, or understand. God's voice at Sinai emerges not from a throat, but from thunder and flame. God's presence shakes the mountain. To have God My friends, we seem to have uh, lost Professor Joy Layden for a second. I'm sure she'll come right back. I'm oh, there so she sorry. is. Okay, great. Can you, Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah, sorry about that. Great. That was, it makes me, since I was talking about God's uh, disruptive presence, it makes me wonder if I said something wrong there <laughs> uh, from God's perspective and got canceled as a result. I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to carry on. If lightning strikes, you should interpret that accordingly. Um, if we treat God as a deity, we can understand. This is what I, what uh, the Ten Commandments, the beginning of the Ten Commandments are telling us. If we treat God as a deity, we can understand. We're repeating our own version of the making of the golden calf. If we don't recognize God's incomprehensible strangeness, we aren't recognizing God at all. When I was a kid, I thought that God, like me, despaired of finding a place in human community because we were both too different to fit fundamental roles and categories. But even in the midst of the genocidal rages that lead God to consider wiping out the Israelites after they make the golden calf and refuse to occupy Canaan, God never stops believing that they, that we, can make a place for a being who doesn't fit the roles and categories that are the basis for our communal relationships. And God is right. Human communities can include individuals who are too different to fit in. Social scientists call people in that position hyper-minorities. W.E.B. Du Bois, the great African-American sociologist and activist, used a simpler term, saying that his own position as a Harvard-educated Black person with a PhD at the turn of the 20th century made him a problem. He wrote, between me and the other world, there is ever an unasked question, unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it. All nevertheless flutter round it. They approach me in a half hesitant sort of way, eye me curiously or compassionately. And then instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem? They say, I know an excellent colored man in my town or I fought at Mechanicsville, or do not these Southern outrages make your blood boil? At these I smile or am interested or reduce the boiling to a simmer as the occasion may require. To the real question, how does it feel to be a problem? I answer seldom a word. 
like God among the Israelites, Du Bois is not only different from the people who surround him, he's different in ways that make it impossible for them to understand him because he doesn't fit the roles and categories assigned to people of color by the brutal early 20th century version of America's racial binary. His difference, impossible for white people to ignore and impossible for them to comprehend, makes Du Bois, to them, a problem. Now that I live as myself, I often feel like a problem. I live in communities where I'm the only one who's different in the way I'm different. The only person who doesn't fit or make sense in terms of what Du Bois would call the other world of binary gender. Like Du Bois among white Northerners, I have a place in that other world, or rather I have, a pla I have places in a few of the communities that are part of it, like my Orthodox university, or the small town New England area that I've lived in since the early 1990s. I don't hide my difference. It's public knowledge that I'm trans. But if others say nothing about it, I say nothing. If someone says they know an excellent transgender person, I smile. If they tell me they support LGBTQ rights, I show interest and encouragement. If they express anger at the mistreatment of LGBTQ people, I, like Du Bois, try to reduce the boiling to a simmer. No one ever asks, and I never say how it feels to be a problem. This isn't a comfortable position to be in, but for me, it's better to be seen as a problem by a community that makes a place, however awkward for my difference, than it is to believe, like I did for most of my life, that I had to choose between concealing who I am or being exiled forever a devastating choice that many trans people still face. God's persistence in dwelling among the Israelites suggests that God makes a similar decision. God prefers to be seen as a problem, to be recognized as a being the Israelites can't understand than not to be seen at all. And as far as God and the Torah are concerned, God is really a problem that's easily solved. Everyone should always accommodate God no matter how strange or burdensome God's demands may seem. This is a technique that also works with trans people. If you just do whatever we want, we, we won't be a problem, we promise. Um, but as the frequent conflicts between God and the Israelites in the book of Numbers show, it's hard for communities to accommodate hyper-minorities and easy for hyper-minorities to feel rejected when they don't accommodate us. By definition, hyperminorities are different in ways others don't understand. And so our feelings and needs can be difficult to anticipate and the accommodations we require may not seem to make sense. We see those difficulties in God's responses to the Israelites complaints about their God-given diet of manna, which they eat for every meal, day after day, year after year for 40 years. It's not surprising that the Israelites would get tired of this monotonous diet. The Torah rather proudly tells us that no matter how it was prepared, manna always tasted like rich cream. So rich cream for every meal. Um, and in any case, there's nothing more human than complaining about the food. But to God, the Israelites' uh, desire for a varied diet seems like a rejection. And the gratitude for it, God expects, feels to the Israelites 
like an unreasonable demand that they upend their most basic tastes and habits. Like most people, I live on both sides of this problem. In some communities, I'm the misunderstood minority who's seen as a problem. In others, I'm part of the majority that doesn't understand the feelings of those who are different. At my university, I'm both at once. In the majority, as a relatively able-bodied per white person of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, and as an openly trans person, the only one of my kind. To the extent that God's difficulties among the Israelites reflect God's position as a hyper-minority, I suspect that this means most of us have something in common with God. Whether we're the only openly trans person in a given organization, the only black Jew in an otherwise white synagogue, the only white person living in a black community, the only blind person at a school where everyone else can see, no matter who or what we are, we each may find ourselves sometimes being in the position of being problematic hyper minorities in some communities, no matter how well we fit into others. At one time or another, most of us will sometimes feel invisible and incomprehensible to those we live with and love and be wounded by words and actions, which to most of the community are simply routine. In the commandment not to oppress the stranger, God summons us to recognize this paradoxical kinship between those who are most marginalized and those who are most central to communities. The fact that we have something in common, no matter which of those positions we occupy, there is a kinship there for us. To see that no matter how different others seem, the experience of being seen as different is something we all have in common. And that commandment is, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the soul of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. This commandment combines hard-headed realism the acknowledgement that even Israelites who were oppressed as strangers in the land of Egypt are likely to turn around and oppress others when they get a chance. With the idealistic belief that people who enjoy the privilege and power of being us can and will identify with those they see as them. I've thrilled to those words since I first read them as a child, but I never believed anyone would live up to them. My skepticism was reinforced every time my family saw a man they considered queer. We didn't respond as the commandment requires by affirming that because Jews had been seen as strangers in the land of Egypt, we knew the soul of the queer. Instead, our stares, facial expressions and mutterings made it clear that we didn't and didn't want to understand a man like that. Of course, the commandment not to oppress the stranger doesn't order gender, gender normative Israelites to identify with the experience of not fitting gender norms. It commands them to identify with the experience, with an experience being oppressed as strangers in Egypt that all of them could remember when the commandment was first given. But the commandment isn't only directed at those who've been enslaved. It also speaks to the generation born free in the wilderness and to the generations after them who grow up in communities in which Israelites are the ruling majority and who are never seen as strangers in their own land or treated by fellow citizens as one of them instead of one of us. In fact, in the Torah, even the Israelites who had been slaves don't seem to remember being strangers in the land of Egypt. 
When they remember a life in Egypt, as they do when complaining about manna, they remember it fondly, like exiles who long to return. Their nostalgia suggests that even when they were enslaved for being different, the Israelites saw Egypt as home. And it's that, the experience of being treated as strangers in a society they felt to be their own, that is what God orders the Israelites to recall in the commandment not to oppress the stranger. That's what ger, the Hebrew word translated as stranger in this commandment means. Not a foreigner with no permanent ties to Israelite society. The Torah has a different term, ben nachar, for the foreigner. But what US immigration law calls a resident alien, and the Torah often refers to as the stranger or ger who dwells among you. A person who lives in the Israelite community, but is always seen as different. Later Jewish tradition recognized two different kinds of gerim. The ger toshav, the stranger who lives with you, who commits to observing some, but not all of the Torah's commandments. And the ger tzedek, the righteous stranger, who not only lives in and follows the laws of the community of Israel, but identifies as a Jew and formally converts to Judaism. Rabbinic law requires that communities treat those who convert to Judaism as Jews and tries to protect them from discrimination by, for example, forbidding other Jews to refer to the fact that a Gerzedek wasn't born Jewish. But as the very term Gerzedek shows, no matter how strongly those who aren't born Jewish identify as Jews, no matter how fully they embrace Judaism and Jewishness, the rabbis assume they'll always be seen as Gerim, as strangers. In fact, the Hebrew word for converting to Judaism is lehit gayer, which literally means to make oneself a stranger. To become a Jew is to identify yourself with a community in which you will always be seen as a stranger, which kind of sounds like um, a Marx Brothers joke, I know, but it's true. Converting to Judaism is far from the only way people hit gayer. Immigrants make strangers of themselves when they leave their native lands and start new lives in countries where their accents will always mark them as different. I made a stranger of myself when I stopped living as a man and started living as a woman. People who'd always greeted me on the street or at synagogue walked by without a sign of recognition. They weren't trying to slight me. They had known me as a man. As a woman, I was a stranger. But Ger and Lehit Geyer don't refer to the kind of sudden estrangement I experienced as a result of gender transition. They refer to the long-term social situation of living in a community in which no matter how long or how well we're known, we're always seen as too different to fit in. After the shock of gender transition wears off, that's the position many openly trans people find ourselves in. And that's the position that rabbis, the rabbis expect people who convert to Judaism to face in Jewish communities. The price for living is who we truly are, is that we're gonna be seen as gerim, as strangers, maybe as righteous strangers, admired for our courage, honesty, and commitment, but as strangers nonetheless. The Torah makes it clear that gerim are built into God's idea of Jewish community and religion. Right, so communities tend to think of gerim as like extras, marginal, something that, you know, occasionally happens as what Du Bois would call a problem. 
But for the Torah, their gerim are part of the plan. Again and again, God reminds the Israelites to include and make place for the stranger, beginning while they're still in the midst of leaving Egypt. When God provides for the inclusion of gerim at the Passover sacrifice, saying that if the ger who dwells among you wants to offer the Passover sacrifice, he can do it as long as he and all his males are uh, circumcised. So it seems pretty unlikely to me that Moses and Aaron, to whom God is addressing this commandment, who are in the middle of leading hundreds of thousands of suddenly freed slaves right after the killing of the firstborn, were thinking about how the Israelites would one day treat resident aliens when the Passover rolled around. But God is. To God, making a place for the stranger, even at the ritual sacrifice that defines and celebrates Israelite identity, is so important that this is among the first commandments God gives after the Israelites begin to leave Egypt. But in the commandment not to oppress the stranger, God goes beyond ordering the Israelites to make a place for Gerim. Though God doesn't use the term, this commands every Israelite to hit Gayer, to identify as strangers, both collectively as members of a people who were treated as strangers and individually by knowing and acknowledging they know the soul, the experience of being seen as strangers in their own communities. This commandment doesn't presume we know how those we see as strangers feel. Rather, God commands that when we see someone as a stranger, we remember the times we too have felt or been seen as too strange to fit in to communities we call home. When I was growing up, I was sure that God and I were the only strangers in a world of human beings who fit gender and other defining roles and categories. I now know how wrong I was. Few people identify as trans, but no one perfectly fits the roles our communities assign us or the categories that define what and who we're supposed to be. God's assumption in this commandment is right. Because the sense of being different is part of being human, whether or not we've had the experience of being treated as gayreen, we all know, and whether or not we admit it, we all have the soul of the stranger. But God isn't just a stranger in this or that community. God is the ultimate gear, a singular presence who dwells among us, sharing our lives, sorrows, and struggles, but who can never be one of us. Maybe that's why God worries about making a place for the gear, even while the Israelites are still leaving Egypt. Because to make a place for God, religious communities must make a place for a stranger who dwells among them. From this perspective, the commandment to know the soul of the stranger is more than a summons to social justice or a reminder not to do unto others the evil others have done to us. It's a spiritual discipline required to make a place for God. The, command, the, the commandments are specific to Israelites, but this spiritual discipline isn't, regardless of our religious tradition or affiliation. To welcome God into our communities, we must welcome a stranger who will never assimilate, who will not look or act like us, speak our language, follow our rules, embrace our values, or confirm our biases. To serve God, we must serve the needs of a stranger. To grow close to God, we must become intimate with a stranger. 
to make a place for the God who dwells invisibly and incomprehensibly among us, to show that God belongs with us and that we belong to God, we must know and build our lives and communities around knowing the soul of the stranger. Thank you. Wow, that was incredibly powerful. Thank you. Thank you for that gift. Um, so before, um, before Joy, we move to um, the Q&A. I just want to ask a, a boundaries question. And I don't usually ask a boundaries question. But I have found in my experience that, um, that when we learn from people of trans experience that they uh, oftentimes receive questions that someone like me as a straight cisgender male wouldn't receive. <laughs> People will ask questions uh, that seem more intrusive. And so um, how should we set the expectations for boundaries in terms of what kind of questions? Thank you for asking that. And that is an appropriate uh, thing to wonder about. I think because I'm a professional educator, I part of my, I would say, um, purpose in this world is to be a trans person where you don't have to worry about that. If you have something that you're sincerely wondering about, I sincerely want to hear it. I'm not so interested in abuse, but I'm not here. Uh, I have a, I am shielded by my status as a speaker, as a professor, as my degrees, my all kinds of mishigas. This is all armor. So I'm not going to be hurt by, um, by what you say or what you ask. Uh, it's my privilege and uh, and duty to help people understand who want to understand. Thank you. Okay, great, friends. So we have about twenty minutes, and um, you feel free to unmute yourself for anything you'd you'd like to ask, Professor Layden. Uh, Shmuley, can I ask? Oh yes, who's that? It's Michael Belinsky. I put on my. Oh, oh yes, yes. Hi, Rabbi Belinsky. Yes, please. Hi. Um, thank you, Professor Layden. Um, for that, that was very helpful. Um, I have very limited experience um, on a personal level with um, people who are trans. And one, one issue that I'm just struggling with um, on a personal level was a good friend of mine whose um, husband uh, then came out and, and is trans and is now a woman. Um, and the marriage uh, has not been able to be sustained because of that, and they're now divorced. Uh, they're getting, they're not divorced yet, but in the process. And so I, I guess my question is, it, how does one navigate or some ideas about how one navigates between these competing moral imperatives uh, between one's own um, asserting one's own identity um, for the best of reasons, and as you described, um, for health and really expressing who you are, and the tension with what the result of that affects people with whom you are most intimate in terms of a family. How does one balance? Is there a way of balancing? these competing moral commitments, um, any sense of, of direction on that, or just these individual families will just have to adapt um, as best as they can. So that's where I really need, need help. Um, and on this one particular case that I know I was closer to uh, the wife, and so my feelings are much more towards her, that may be my own personal reaction, 
is not necessarily the correct moral answer. Um, so that's what I just really need uh, some help with. If you can comment on that for a minute, please. That's an that's a uh, an important question, both because um, you're dealing with human beings who are in pain, and you're trying to guide them through this in a way that will minimize the hurt, and also because it brings up a lot of the key questions that are often faced in communities around this. So first of all, I want to say that you beautifully defined the hyper-minority thing. You said, well, I don't have a lot of experience with trans people. And that is the, that's the definition of a hyper-minority. Somebody is in your community, they're part of your community. You don't get to just say, well, that's, that's another rabbi's problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> they're, they're one of us, but that's a kind of person where you see them as somebody who is so different that you feel like you can't understand them. You don't have the experience. You don't understand their perspective. That is the definition of a hyper-minority. And it is a normal thing, right? Communities always have people who are in hyper-minority positions. And it's always hard for people who aren't in those positions to understand them. It's just built into the dynamic. So that is sort of one thing to understand that uh, you've, uh, the first moral obligation is to do just what you said, to realize, to be, to have the humility, I guess, to say, yeah, you know what? You're different in ways I don't understand. So I bet you have feelings and imperatives and needs that are going on that I shouldn't assume that I would understand. I think that that's great. At the same time, I would say the next step is to, uh, is like the Jonah reading step that I did to recognize that most of what goes on with trans people is just human stuff. So I would say one of the big reasons marriages break up is because one person changes in ways that no longer fit the container of the marriage. And um, mo mostly that's not gender transition, but it is often something, right? Their sexual needs change, their job situation, you know, they get a job offer in Guam and their other partners, right? There's many different, we keep changing our whole lives and lifelong relationships are hard to sustain when we keep changing as individuals all our lives. So I would say a lot of your experience in counseling married couples where they're breaking up because one person is changing in ways that don't work for the other person anymore, I would say you have a lot to draw on there. I would also say that um, the Torah, weirdly enough, offers a, a little bit of precedent here in the form of, um, first of all, the Nazarite vows laws. The Nazarite vows were, you know, uh, when you took a Nazarite vow, you were guaranteed to be a pain in the butt to everybody around you. Right, like you would just, you by definition, by being a Nazir, all of a sudden you don't fit in. You can't drink wine at Shabbat, right? You can't participate in the grape harvest. You can, right? There's all this stuff. You're going to look weird after a couple months. You're just going to look strange at family occasions. So I would imagine that no family was happy to have somebody say, "Oh, I just took the vows of being a Nazirite." But but the Torah protects the idea that an individual, for reasons that are incomprehensible, to those around them may need to do things that set them apart. That that, so that is, that's a, a protected and recognized thing in the Nazarite laws. In the, the vowing laws where a woman makes a vow and the husband has a limited 
amount of time to annul them or not, right? That's a patriarchal attempt to say, wow, even women have to be able to make individual life decisions about what's true for their lives in relation to God. That's really what a vow is. This is what I need to do in relation to God. And that may create tension in the family. And the Torah doesn't say that the vow is annulled by the husband. It just says God won't blame the woman for not following through. God will blame the husband. That's it's between the husband and God. So you are now in, a, in, in, I would say, in gender transition and other kinds of breakups like this. This is the position God is in with the vows a woman makes that the husband doesn't like. It's like, right, you know, I'm, I'm there in the family. I got to be understanding about both parties. One of them has needs the other party can't live with, and that is going to create tensions, and I somehow have to be there for both of them. So I think that there's a lot of wisdom to draw on in Jewish tradition for navigating this. And I would say that the Torah's precedents say that one of the, I don't have, you know, I don't, I don't think that there is, from, in my personal morality, I didn't get a get out of, um, get out of culpability free card. You know, my gender transition uh, it was awful for my ex. It was bad for my children. Divorce is always bad for children, right? These things are true. And it's also true that I, I was going to, you know, I was going to kill myself. I couldn't live as somebody I wasn't anymore. Um, I had numerous therapists telling me that killing myself wasn't actually better for my children or my, my ex than Right, so you know, sometimes it just it happens that way. Um, children never want parents to change, and they never want marriages to break up. But parents do change, and marriages do break up, and it causes pain. So I would say the moral imperative for me, as the transitioning person, and for everybody, is to try to be true to yourself and also compassionate, and recognize the suffering of other people. And that was really hard for me. It was very hard for me because I felt like all my life I had been hurting myself for the sake of other people, right? When you, when you have to deny such a fundamental aspect of yourself, there is pain and loneliness that goes along with that that is hard to, hard to explain to people who haven't gone into it. That's really a hyper minority experience, but you can, you can imagine it. You just... So when, you, when the time finally comes where you're like, no, it's my turn, you know? I've been doing this, you know, in my case for 20 plus years in my relationship with my ex. And I just couldn't do it anymore. And I really didn't want to pay attention to her suffering. I didn't want to acknowledge the pain my ch children were going through. It didn't seem fair, but that was actually what I needed to do. Right, it, it was, and, and it was Hillel really who taught me this. It was like, I did have to be for myself and no one was ever gonna be for me. No one ever tells a trans person, you know what, you should really live as who you truly are. No one will ever tell you that. Nobody ever wants you to do that. It is always bad for other people. Other people always build their lives around whatever gender you're presenting at and it upsets apple carts when you change it. But even though yeah I, yeah, I had to be true to myself. I also couldn't be for myself alone. 
that was the, that I felt is the real moral imperative. I had to say, yeah, I'm being who I am and it is having effects on people who love me and whose lives are intertwined with me. And I have to be true to them and to myself at the same time. And that's what I would say. And it is really difficult. Divorces all of these kinds of conflicts. The easier thing is to take one side or another. The harder thing is to say, wow, this is a whole house full of suffering human beings. And there's no moral scale that says one suffering is more real than anybody else's suffering. So I would say, and you know, I'm not a rabbi, and this is one of the reasons. I don't wanna do this work myself. So I'm talking the talk, but I'm not walking the walk. So I would say my uh, advice for you would be to try to help everybody understand and hold the real feelings of other people and not retreat into the, well, I'm entitled to my feelings and you're the bad person, so you don't get your feelings. Um, to really try to hold on to the hold on to the long trajectory of love, because when people in a in a family really love each other, you get through this. I think one way or another you get through it. What gets hard is if you say, "Look, either you deny the rea your feelings and ex and say mine are more important." That's it. It's my way or the highway. That is what really destroys people and destroys relationships. And I don't know if that was helpful at all, but. No, thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? I would be happy to ask a question if nobody else. Yes, Rabbi. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Leiden, for the talk. It was uh, very moving, very beautiful. And uh, if you're asking for feedback on your answer to Rabbi Mike, it was, <laughs> for me at least, that was even more enriching. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> um, you, I just want to touch on, on the point you're making about the hyper-minorities. I, I, I uh, have found that the, the, the most effective manner to overcome people's prejudices is this type of thing that we're doing now, the actual personal encounter, the to, to come face to face with the human, to hear the pain, to hear the experience. But what I have found is that it's hard, the people who, um, how should I put this, who have the prejudice, people who need to come to these meetings, they have, it is, they don't, they don't want to hear about it. That they, they don't want to make that one step, just come and listen. The reaction is, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to be, so I want to ask you if you have any tips from your experiences, what can, what does one do to bring these people with the biases and the prejudices to come and listen? Mm. Well, that is, that's one of the central questions of my, my work. Um, and I wish I had the, uh, the, the magic answer, right? Because then this country would be a lot better. I would just go out and dissolve prejudice wherever I went, 24 seven, I would be dissolving prejudice. Um, but what I've, what I've realized is a few things. One is that while people often don't wanna understand others, almost everybody wants to be understood. So sometimes 
the starting point to creating understanding is creating a space where everybody gets to talk about their experiences. And the truth is, with all of these identity defining things that keep us apart, they're also systems that we all live in and they all, you know, they work better or worse for each of us, right? We all have stories to tell about gender and we all um, have things we want from it. We all have ownership of it. So one of the things that I think often shuts people off is the feeling that if I get, they're being forced to listen to my story, not just to listen to my story, the story of somebody they don't care about, but they're being forced to give up their own stories, right? It's a, it's a, um, a zero sum game. Understanding is a zero sum game. They have to understand me, but I won't understand them. There are people who are transphobic, not in the way this is sort of loosely thrown around as anybody who opposes trans rights or certain policies, but who actually, it's like arachnophobia. You know, spiders really creep me out. I'm sure there are some very nice spiders, but I personally am disturbed by every single one of them, right? That doesn't make me a bad person. It just makes me a person with these kinds of feelings. There are people who are really creeped out by people who confuse gender categories. There are a lot of people who are like that. These are fundamental categories. You know, it's kind of like people who keep kosher and you, you get this sense that there's something actually loathsome about mixing, you know, milk and chicken. Even though, you know, it, it just be, you know, we, we get invested in these kinds of separations in pr some pretty deep and irrational ways. And guess what? People are entitled to their feelings. And I, so I think one of the obstacles is, uh, one of the things you can do is create a space where everybody actually is entitled to their feelings. When there's, an, it's not that one story crowds out the others, but actually the goal is to create, is to air this. And there are real anxieties that people have. Like I, I uh, transitioned in a small Jewish community where I've been living for more than a decade as a very involved man, a father, a board member, and suddenly I'm using the women's restroom. And guess what? Not everybody was comfortable with that. In fact, I wasn't comfortable with that. Nobody knew what to say because the community had not created any space for any discussion of it. Finally, somebody who I'd known for years, he said, look, you know, I don't know if it's okay to say this, but it is just really strange seeing you this way after all these years. And I said, not only is it okay, it is a relief because, you know, we're all walking around not dealing with something that is really a big change in something we all share. So I think that creating space where everybody gets to be a stakeholder, nobody gets to silence anybody else. And that is, if you want understanding, not consensus, not the idea, the point isn't that everybody has to agree with me, but if the, if the idea is understanding, creating a space where I'm also ready to understand I'm also ready to listen to people's stories is important. I think another thing I would say is that gender is always more complicated than a binary thing for everybody until we become anxious. It's just like being Jewish, right? What a mess being Jewish is. Somebody says, I'm a Jew. I feel like I don't know anything about them. What the heck does being a Jew mean to you? It could mean anything. 
You know, there are people who say I'm a Jew and what they mean is they're a follower of Jesus. Like, right, they're a Messianic Jew and I, they're a Jew in a way that I don't understand at all. So gender is like that also. Somebody says I'm a man or I'm a woman. It's not a simple thing for anybody. It's deeply personal. It's defined by their life history. People go through a lot of changes around it, even if they're not trans. But when we become anxious, one of our responses to anxiety is to simplify everything with binaries. We cling to binaries. Look, you're either a Jew or you're not a Jew. You're either a man or you're a woman. You're either transgender or you're cisgender. Like trans people invented our own binary for when we get anxious about this, right? Everybody has to be one thing or another. It is, um, it's a cognitive simplification mechanism. And so realizing that has helped me realize that as when people are holding on to those things, it is a sign of anxiety. And so it's not my job to make people less anxious on the one hand, but on the other hand, if I want people to understand, I know as a teacher, I need to reduce their anxiety. Otherwise people are gonna retreat into strongly held binary positions and they're not gonna be open to listening. And so that's what I would say. And it's, you know, in advocacy for minority work, that's not usually the, the position that you take. And there, I'm not saying it's what you should do all the time. But hyper-minorities, by definition, we really need understanding from people when we don't have large constituencies, right? So if we want understanding, this kind of creating spaces where everybody gets to be understood, creating spaces where everybody gets to tell their stories of gender or what they need from gender, or what they're anxious about with regard to somebody like me, that is a crucial step. All right. Awesome. I think that uh, we hit our hour. And so I think it's time to wrap up. And I just want to uh, take a moment to thank Dr. Joy Layden for coming out and speaking to our community today. And thank you all for joining us. I just wanted to um, make a note to everyone that next Thursday, Valley Beat Midrash will be hosting uh, Professor Evenya Shkolnik, who will, prevent, who will present her topic on the habitability of our nearest exoplanet neighbor and what does it mean to you <laughs> so that'll be next thursday january 21st <laughs> all right thank you so much everybody and i hope you have a great great day thank you thank you everyone bye bye now <laughs>